Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio station where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the 398th show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Doug McDonald, archaeologist in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Montana who is going to talk to us about the prehistoric human activity in Yellowstone National Park. The History Buffs for today's show are Ed Broders and Terry Toplip. The show's theme song is called Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. And our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk the Naran, and today we're going to be talking about prehistoric human activity in Yellowstone National Park with Dr. Doug McDonald, archaeologist in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Montana. Welcome to the show, Doug. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. We are very excited. So, first of all, can you give me just a little background on the history of Yellowstone National Park and particularly um, of indigenous peoples within the park? Yeah, so, you know, the park was first established in 1872 as a national park. It was the world's first national park. But, of course, people lived there for 11,000 years prior prior to that. Um, a variety of Native American tribes um, uh, live in Yellowstone National Park and live there and, and still like to call it home. And, um, you know, uh, they've been living there since first peoples arrived in America, came from Asia, all the way and uh, through North America and arrived in Montana, Wyoming, the Rocky Mountains, and what is now called uh, Yellowstone National Park. So that was, you know, about 11,000 years ago. And since that time, people have lived in Yellowstone and um, enjoyed all the things that are there, just just like we do today. Okay, to expand on that, um, of course, uh, prehistoric migrations, um, are always something that are is really incredibly fascinating to try and put together why certain people migrate to certain places. I, I teach a class on um, world studies, and we talk about this a little bit. So what aspects did what today would be Yellowstone Park have that was very um, maybe intriguing or a necessity for uh, the people back then to want to go there? Yeah, so like 11,000 years ago, the, the first Native American culture that archaeologists describe is called Clovis. So these people were living predominantly in lower elevation places. So around Montana, Wyoming, these are kind of the lower, drier, warmer places. Um, the mountains, such as Yellowstone, weren't used as much. And the, the evidence that we have for Native American hunter-gatherer peoples in Yellowstone 11,000 years ago is a total of two projectile points used to kill like mammoths or camels or horses, animals that still lived uh, at that time um, in places around Yellowstone. And so that's not a lot of evidence, right? That's only two projectile points. That's not a lot. So the human use of Yellowstone at that time was probably pretty thin. And that's mostly because it was covered or had recently been covered by glaciers and so it was not a great place to be um that's why the lower elevation places had all the game had all the plants the 
the things that people need to survive as hunter-gatherers. It really wasn't probably until between nine and 10,000 years ago that Yellowstone sort of became what it was for the rest of that time. So since about 10,000 years ago, you can consider Yellowstone to be somewhat of a summer oasis. Again, a lot like it is uh, today for tourists coming into the park. Native Americans would seek those uh, cooler temperatures in the hot and dry summers, uh, fleeing the lower elevations, heading up into places like Yellowstone in the Rocky Mountains, looking for resources that they couldn't get down at the lower elevations. So those are things like pine nuts that are ripen in the fall. Those were a hugely important resource for Native Americans in Yellowstone. Uh, animals were moving upslope in the summers, seeking higher elevations that are cooler, not quite as buggy. And so people were following the animals, the ripening of the plants, the seasonal availability of resources um, into the higher elevations in places, you know, like Yellowstone, like the rest of the Rocky Mountains. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that's that was the draw of the higher elevations in the Rocky Mountains, like Yellowstone, for, for Native American hunter-gatherers. Okay. Um, Doug, I'm curious, you, you know, talk about, you know, two projectile points, you know, being an indicator for the earliest usage. Um, what kind of archaeological evidence... Uh, do we have as time goes by? Um, are, do we have a lot of sites that have been excavated? Um, are those sites tending to be in places where uh, the public uh, is often? Are they you know, somewhere else? Um, so give me kind of a sense of, of the, the archaeological record as it exists at the moment. Yeah, so after about 9,500 years ago or so, we start to see a lot more archaeological sites in Yellowstone. Um, there's a culture in Yellowstone that archaeologists call the Cody culture, named after an archaeological site in Cody, Wyoming. Um, those people that lived around Cody and what's now the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming would use Yellowstone National Park and the Rocky Mountains of that region of Montana and Wyoming quite a lot. Since that time, that's the case. And so we, we do have a fair number of sites, you know, dozens and dozens of of archaeological sites from all the time periods after that. So the the sampling is pretty good. Um, and I think, you know, it's not that we just haven't found the sites yet necessarily, although there are a lot of sites we haven't found. Um, I think we've sampled enough of places like Yellowstone to, to, to really be able to understand that there probably weren't a ton of people up in Yellowstone 11,000 years ago. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about sort of the higher elevation areas around Yellowstone Lake, especially once you get down into places, say, like Gardner, Montana. Say Gardner, Montana is along the Yellowstone River. That's the lowest elevation part of the park. If we're going to find any evidence of Clovis 11,000 years ago, it's going to be in places like that. And I would almost guarantee you <laughs> that at some point, somebody's going to be digging in their garden around Gardner, Montana, at some time in the next 10 or 20 years, and they're going to find a really important Clovis site. So there was a big Clovis site found in Boulder, Colorado, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and that's exactly how it was found. It was found by a guy just digging in his garden, and all of a sudden he found all these Clovis artifacts, and it's a lot of serendipity. Um, the two Clovis points that we have found were largely found the same way, you know, just walking in places where we expected Native Americans to have lived and found a, 
a, a Clovis point. Um, but we've looked in a lot of other places and haven't found them. But we've found all kinds of other artifacts from later time periods. So, um, so yeah, you know, there are going to be more sites found, and uh, hopefully, we'll be the ones uh, to find them. And if any of your listeners are out there and they find a Clovis point, they can call me at the University <laughs> of Montana, so I can share. So I can right. share the credit. All right, um, Doug. Let me follow up for a second here. Um, is the distribution of the sites that you have? Um, is it fairly distributed throughout the park in terms of north, south, east, west? Did, does this tend to be more more sites to the eastern so- part of the park or the western side of the park, or, or what? How's that work out? Yeah, everywhere we've looked, we've found sites. There's a few unusual situations, a couple places we've looked where we didn't find a lot. Um, but for the most part, you know, um, in the west, we have the Madison River Valley, great place to be hanging out. West Yellowstone, Montana is the town there now. Um, you know, there's lots of archaeological sites around there. In the south, you sort of get down toward Yellowstone Lake. Boy, Native Americans live there a lot. They love the lake. Um, and then once you get down toward Jackson, Wyoming, on the southern entrance of the park, tons of archaeology down there. Go over toward the east, right, Cody, Wyoming, like I was just talking about. Um, that's in the Shoshone River Valley, great place to be, tons of archaeology, all the way from Cody all the way up into Yellowstone National Park. The same is true in the north as we head into the Yellowstone River Valley and Gardner. So, and you know, the the interesting thing that I, I think about the archaeology of Yellowstone is it's a great example of um, places where, you know, today I think the park makes it sort of seem like we're all the first people that ever stepped foot there. <laughs> and even in these remote places that we would today characterize as wilderness, and I'm talking about remote mountains that are 11,000 feet high, where all you see is, is snow and ice right now, there's archaeological sites showing that Native Americans lived there and were frequenting those places to hunt animals and to collect uh, uh, plants as they ripen up in those higher elevations. So this certainly was not a wilderness for Native Americans in the sense that when we define wilderness, it's defined as a place that's uninhabited and inhospitable. And so, of course, today, a lot of those places we might characterize as wilderness because nobody really lives there. But 11,000, starting 11,000 years ago and all the way up until 1872, Native Americans were living in those places. So it's, it's not as if it's untouched, um, pristine wilderness. It is today because the Native Americans were removed, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, killed off. But yes, uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. 
My name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Doug McDonald, archaeologist in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Montana, and we're talking about prehistoric human activity in Yellowstone National Park. Our history bus for today's show is Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. And Ed, since you like gardening, and who knows, maybe you'll find the first sites of Clovis in your garden off of Emi's, uh, you get the first question. Well, actually, I did find two or three uh, <laughs> projectile points on the farm, John, uh, back when we used to till, but don't do that anymore. But anyway, um, Dr. McDonald, from the, artic- uh, from the article in Smithsonian, um, they talked about how for a long, long time, the official line from the Park Service and the U.S. government was that, that Yellowstone had never uh, been been occupied. Can you elaborate on that, and what was the point of it all? Yeah, yeah. So the um, you have to understand the era in which the park was established, right? So 1872, you have the first na- world's first national park being established in Yellowstone. Um, that's during the height of the period in the American history that was the Indian War period, right? And so here we have a national park in the midst of the Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho wilderness, and the park administrators want people to come to it. It's a beautiful place. You know, everybody knows about Yellowstone today, but back then it was it was all sort of a mythical place of hot springs and uh, bison and wolves and bears, right? Um And so in order to get people from back east to take the Northern Pacific Railroad, which was a huge piece of the pie, uh, to get them out to places like Livingston and then take the train down to to Gardner uh, and then enter the park and also into West Yellowstone was another train stop back then. Um, In order to encourage American tourism in getting to Yellowstone, they really tried to minimize the Native American presence. As you can imagine, you know, all these Indian wars in the Great Plains and the Rocky Mountains, um, the park administrators went out of their way to downplay the presence of Native Americans in Yellowstone to encourage tourism. So so was it kind of a concern for, or to at least project that this was a safe place? Yeah, that was the Compared idea. To, that it was, uh, oh, okay. Yep. Yep, but, and it was safe for tourists. The ironic thing, obviously, was that in 1877, five years after the establishment of the park, uh, the Nez Perce, under the leadership of Chief Joseph, were on on their great journey from Idaho trying to reach Saskatchewan, where Sitting Bull was, um, so they could uh, didn't have to live on the reservations that the United States government had established for the Nez Perce. They went, the Nez Perce traveled right through Yellowstone, had skirmishes with tourists as they came through, and... Um, and there were deaths associated with that, that trip through Yellowstone. So, um, you know, it was, right, Terry. it was still actively used by Native Americans uh, in the 1870s. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dr. Yes, Dr. McDonald, I'm curious, um, what evidence um, do you use to understand how the environment has changed? You mentioned that human habitation was there up to 11,000 years ago. So... I assume that the environment was not quite the same as it is today. Uh, so what evidence is used to determine uh, that environment? 
Yeah, so most of the environmental research has been done by a woman and her students out of Montana State University, a woman named Kathy Whitlock. And she's uh, quite a famous environmental um, scientist who has gone to Yellowstone, spent her whole career um, digging big old cores in the bottom of lakes all throughout the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And she and her students, among other um, scientists out there, have reconstructed uh, what the environment was like over the last uh, 11 to 15 to 20,000 years based on those um, cores that they dig in the bottom of, of lakes. Uh, and so based on that, uh, they know that 11,000 years ago, it probably wasn't a great place to be because the glaciers had, had pretty much just melted. It was still fairly uh, colder than what I would call the modern environment there. There were plants hadn't migrated into that ecosystem yet. Animals thus hadn't followed either. So it was, it was, think about, you know, if you're up in Alaska these days where a few of the last glaciers still persist, the areas around those glaciers don't have a lot of vegetation, don't have a ton of, of animals. Um, and so uh, that's sort of what we can imagine was Yellowstone until maybe 10,000 years ago or so. Once the pine forest started to move in, once other other plants started to move in, animals soon followed, and, and humans, of course, were after all those things and soon followed as well. Now, I would say the one resource that was there 11,000 years ago that Native Americans were going out of their way to get was obsidian. And so that, that was a resource, you know, once the glaciers melted, those big obsidian quarries in Yellowstone were exposed, and Native Americans were really keen on collecting that rock um, and that was available right away there when people first got there. And there's there's evidence that Native Americans collected collected it 11,000 years ago. Um, okay. Doug, I'm I'm interested. What kinds of material remains? Uh, you've talked about pro projectile points and obsidian. Um, as time progresses, do we have a full range of? pottery shard kinds of things of baskets and things like that that maybe have been preserved um so so what kind of uh give us sort of a a summary of the kinds of things you found over this time period yeah so the archaeology in yellowstone is defined by unique types of uh pretty much projectile points so up until maybe 1500 years ago those projectile points tipped atlatl darts and so an atlatl is a spear thrower. If, if it's the same technology, if, if you all have dogs, those chuckers, that's <laughs> basically extending the length of your arm right. so you could have more leverage and throw the ball really far. Well, that's a Native American technology that the chucker company totally ripped off. And so, and actually not just Native American, that, that you know, that evolved in ancient uh, Africa, Europe, everybody across the world was using the atlatl. Uh, so it's certainly not unique to Native Americans, but they were using it up until about 1,500 years ago. After 1,500 years ago, the bow and arrow was introduced. It, it came in probably from the north. That's an interesting research question that probably hasn't been solved quite yet. But it probably also migrated from Asia, eventually making it to places like the northern Great Plains and Rocky Mountains about 1,500 years ago, give or take. Um, so that's a real defining point for the types of stone tool technology for for me and for my research in archaeology in Yellowstone because after 1500 years ago up until basically the current era the projectile points are arrow points and, and they're really tiny they're really small and so it's pretty easy to see 
projectile points that are arrow points because they're really small. Before 1,500 years ago, they were using much larger stone projectile points. So we know that any larger ones are before that time period. Then you can either further subdivide it into other categories, and, and that's what we've done in Yellowstone, and that's what they've done in Iowa, where you are. And that's just what archaeologists do is, is divide different styles of projectile points based on the types of archaeological sites that we find them in and define different periods of time. In Yellowstone, that's the Paleo-Indian period, of which Clovis is a part. That's the oldest. And then we get into the Archaic period between about 8,000 and 3,000 years ago. Um, and then after that is the, the um, late prehistoric period in which you start to see the introduction of arrows. And so that's sort of how we define it. Um, I would say you talked about basketry. I honestly can't think of a single basket that's ever been found in Yellowstone. The environment's just not very good for preservation of organic material. We hardly even find bone. Um, we do occasionally find pottery, and we also find evidence of use of other types of vessels, not just pottery, but a type of stone found in the Rocky Mountains called soapstone that Native American peoples were hunting, uh, were, I'm sorry, carving the soapstone, which is a very soft stone. They were carving that into bowls that they could use for cooking and food, food processing things. So, um, but... 99% of the artifacts that we find in our archaeology is stone tool technology, um, and that's how we define the different time periods. Another thing we're always looking for is uh, fire pits or, or hearths that Native Americans use to cook food, process food. Those typically will still have charcoal in them, and we can get the radiocarbon dates from the charcoal that will tell us okay. when that fire was built. Okay. Let's a question back to uh, kind of what Ed was going with the modern perspective. You said that the um, park was established in 1872. Well, uh, in 1876, of course, you have uh, Custard's Last Stand, which is not that far. So when the creators of the park are trying to entice Easterners to come and check things out, and as you said, try to push the Native Americans out of the picture, um, you had the greatest defeats of any American army to the Native Americans happened down the road. Did this impact the attendance of, um, you know, Yellowstone, or were they able to push it aside? Or, I mean, did that have any, because uh, they're not that far apart. And to be honest, Easterners out, uh, the Americans out east probably didn't know much difference between the two. Yeah, I mean, I, the total numbers of tourists in Yellowstone was incredibly low at that time, no matter whether a little big horn battle happened or not. Right. So, okay. I, I don't, I actually, I can't, I'm not sure we have good enough attendance numbers to tell us whether little big horn affected it negatively or not. I would assume it probably did just like you would. Um, but the, the way it really affected Yellowstone was that the, when the Nez Perce came through in 1877, that was literally a year after little big horn. And so, right. Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce was leading 700 of his compatriots through Yellowstone trying to get to Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull, of course, was the leader of the, the group of Indians that defeated Custer at Little Bighorn. And so the U.S. Cavalry was dead set against Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce from reaching Sitting Bull. They just didn't want that embarrassment of letting Chief Joseph and his first get away. As this, and you can think of that really as the last biggest 
Native American um, effort to uh, try to get out of the continental United States and, and as maybe one of the last big battles of, of the Native American wars was the defeat of Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce here, here in Montana in 1877. Okay, uh, Terry, you're going to get the uh, the honor to, well, actually, you know what, I'm going to change my mind. Ed, you get the honor of the last question. Yeah, Doug, um, you, it was in the magazine article, Is the and you alluded to it earlier, is the narrative put out by the parts, uh, Park Service slowly evolving to where your your work is becoming part of the um, official narrative now as opposed to what the way it was for decades? You know, I'd like to think so, but, it, you know, I think the article does a pretty good job of, of painting a picture of maybe that's not the case. Um, but I will tell you that our research has been very well funded by Yellowstone. So when you see a book like I wrote before Yellowstone, right, that's a book about the Native American archaeology that we've done in, in Yellowstone, that the park really encouraged that. You know, they really are trying to get the word out about Native American history in the park. Um, but they sort of struggle against this idea that Yellowstone is a natural park, and that's a, a National Park Service sort of dichotomy where you have natural parks like Yellowstone, Yosemite, and and then also history parks that are cultural parks, like Gettysburg is a good example. And, and that's sort of how National Park Service divides their parks. And so Yellowstone certainly fits into that natural park. And so for that reason, they sort of market it in terms of the geology and the hot springs and the bison and the wolves and the bears, right? They're starting to learn that people like you <laughs> – are interested in the Native American history. And so I think, I'm hoping, that with the interest of the park archaeologist in Yellowstone, Beth Horton, who's great, and the park cultural resource manager, Tobin Roop, are really trying to push the Native American history angle. Um, and they were really encouraging of the Smithsonian article, and that's why it was even allowed to be published. Um, it was at the, uh, the okay of, of the park itself. So that article wouldn't have been published if the park didn't want it to. And so that in and of itself is the message to us, I think, that they really are trying to get the word out about Native American history. All right. Okay. It it's is. Cuts, oh, okay. go ahead, John. It's customary to give our guests the last word on the show. Doug, in about a minute, uh, it's, can you t tell uh, our listeners why the Native American population and uh, occupation of Yellow National, uh, Yellowstone National Park is relevant in today's world? Yeah, I mean, I think it just shows you the world that used to be uh, in, in, uh, in the Americas, right? We had uh, millions of Native Americans living in, in uh, North America prior to the arrival of European Americans and other, other world cultures, and, um, and they were pushed out so that we today can enjoy it as a a tourist place. And I think there's a, a certain amount of irony there that we don't necessarily appreciate when we drive through Yellowstone. <laughs> um, and, and I think that uh, calling it a wilderness really is, is an ethnocentric term, right? Because clearly Yellowstone's not a wilderness if you consider the Native American history of, of a place like Yellowstone. Um, the only reason it's a wilderness is because those people were removed forcibly by the U.S. government. And so it's... Um, you know, and the other thing is Yellowstone's a great laboratory for me to study hunter-gatherers 
you know, all of us are here today because our ancestors, without a doubt, every single one of us, because we had successful hunter-gatherers in our lineage, you know, um, and that was occurring in places like Yellowstone until uh, the, the mid-19th century. And so it's, it's kind of a, uh, not something that I think a lot of people uh, think about, and that's, that's why I think it's relevant, because it's so easy to forget about those things in, in today's world. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 398th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, Dr. Doug McDonald, archaeologist in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Montana, who talked with us about prehistoric human activity and modern human activity in Yellowstone National Park. The history boss for today's show are Ed Broders and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose uh, University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>